there are few things more powerful for a Christian to say when they mean it than here I am, send me. How do we think the church got to this point from the death of Jesus and his ascendance? How do we think the church was built from that glorious resurrection day all the way to 2021? It got here because people were bold enough and believed enough to say, here I am, send me. And they trusted and they had faith. And it took us from that day to here. What a glorious picture. It makes my heart speed up thinking about how incredible God take, took us from that point to here. I can't fathom the span of 2,000 years. I can't fathom the distance and the eras and the people, the lives and deaths of countless, countless people, non-believers and believers alike, to get us to this point sitting in this room. Where we want to go today is we want to look at the New Testament church directly post-ascendance. We're talking about in the book of Acts. Right after Jesus had left, this was not the best time for the new church. Politically, but spiritually, faithfully, there had never been a time more powerful and driven. There had never been a time that the word spread more like wildfire. I want to look at why that is. I want to look at what this New Testament church did when their hero, for the most part, had been killed. Now, those, there were several, many, that Jesus appeared to post-resurrection. But there were many, many more that never saw him directly. But they still moved forward in their faith. And they did it by faith. They did it because they believed that Jesus had died and rose again, that their hero, their savior, was not dead and he could not stay dead. It was impossible. I want to look at Acts 2, 42 through 47, if you would look through there for me, and Acts 4, 23 through 31. I want to look at what the New Testament church looked like. How did they meet? What were their goals? How did they function? What part of their lives allowed the wildfire spreading gospel from that day to here? How did they do it? Do you think our churches today are examples of that early church? Do we look like them? Not the people specifically. Do our hearts look like the hearts of those that believed so boldly? And if I had to describe anything about this New Testament church, it is the word bold. They were bold in their faith, bold in their trust, bold in their belief, bold in their actions. What makes them different? What did they do? Let's read our first text through here. And each of these texts are a little lengthy, but they offer a full picture of how they operated. This is verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings 
and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It seems so simple to look at that page. Okay, yeah, there were a few little check marks that they did. Good, God added to their number. The heart condition here is the powerful and beautiful thing. To enact verses 42 through 47, it takes the whole soul. It takes devotion. It takes belief in something so much greater than ourselves. But what are we devoted to? They were devoted to two different things here. The apostles' teaching and fellowship. You can't have one without the other. A lot of times church is seen today in a modern sense of, I come to church, the preacher tells me something maybe I didn't know, maybe it's an encouragement, and I go home and I talk to my family about what we learned. I might read my scripture, but otherwise I'll just wait and come back on Sunday. And that fulfills one aspect there. The teaching of the apostles, the teaching of someone learned, the teaching of someone who has spent time in the word. Now that being said, the apostles were not master scholars. They were not Judaizers and big scribes. They were common men. So what made them different? What gave them the authority to teach? What gave them the position to teach who was around them? They simply believed and they listened. Jesus gave them all the information they ever needed. He gave them the instruction. He gave them the direction. He gave them the heart. He told them through the parables how they were to react to their world. And all they did was believe and reiterate what the king said. And it was glorious. You were able to teach. Now there was something different here. Miracles and signs were still being performed. Demons cast out. Situations being resolved by almost a supernatural means. When I was studying this this week, I looked at Whitney and I said, do you think that those type of miracles are possible today? Most of us would say, by logic, by scripture, yeah. Yeah, those are possible. It can happen. Query then, why don't we see them? Can we see them? Are they happening? Are we looking for them? Do we have the faith to enact them? This is the beauty of that New Testament church. We don't really know. All we know is that these people were faithful beyond measure. And we'll see the result of that when we get into our second passage. Let's move on for a second. The breaking of bread together and prayers. He puts a set of couplings together. Two things that go hand in hand, and they can't live without each other. The first was the apostles' teaching and fellowship. You have to fellowship together. You have to talk amongst yourselves, learn amongst yourselves, be together as believers. The next part of that was breaking of bread together and prayers. Now, breaking of bread in that era was far more significant than simply having a meal. And that is significant. Food has always tied people together. If you look, have any interest in archaeology or anthropology, look back through history. Food unites people and always has. But 
food and breaking bread in that era meant I am going to take the time to lay and recline, because they didn't have chairs like we do. We're going to recline around our little table. We're going to eat together and be intentional with each other. We are breaking this bread together. But it also included the prayers. It wasn't just we got together, we talked, we had a good time, we went home. It was intentional throughout the whole thing. It doesn't say when either. It doesn't say, oh, before they left or before they blessed the meal, they prayed. Before we left, we made sure everyone got home safely, we made said a good prayer, and we went on. Now that's perfectly fine, and we want to encourage that. We want to do that. But shouldn't prayer be throughout? Shouldn't prayer be out through the whole process? Whenever we go into our workplaces today, whenever we go to our schools, those of you who are still in school, and we see something that we think, man, you, God has to be looking at that. He has to be paying attention to that. Maybe it's a road rager on the way to work. Yeah, God's watching you. Maybe it's someone at your work who's just crying at lunch and you've never even talked to him. And you think, man, surely God's looking out for him. Why don't you pray? Why don't I pray? Once again, I reiterate, every time I'm up on this pulpit, I would never tell you something that I don't have to correct within myself. Every single time, these are things that I need to clean through and we all need to clean through to step closer to understanding how this New Testament church spread from that tiny Judea, geographically, Judea was a tiny place. And they moved from that to Asia to the rest of the world. How did they do it? Because they were cleaning these little minimizations and maximizations of their heart. Prayer is constant. We break bread together. We fellowship. We're intentional with each other. And we intentionally pray for each other. Let's keep going. The breaking of bread here was likely the Lord's Supper and, big stuff for us, fellowship meals. Does that not sound like a potluck? I put in my little thing, in my little outline here, I put woo with a capital, with an exclamation point. Because it is clear, you have to have time to celebrate the, the resurrection of Christ, the giving of blood, the Lord's Supper. We need to be symbolic in that representation. But we also need time to be and talk to one another as believers. Now, here's the crazy question. Why do we need that time to be a fellowship, to strengthen each other, to build the church up? Because the intention is, as the Great Commission states, to go out into the world. We have to build our core here, doing the Lord's Supper, fellowshiping together, praying for one another, meeting in our homes, so that when we leave here, we can go and address the world correctly. And that was the New Testament point. They didn't have a fellowship meal to hang out with their buddies and go home and take a nap. They had a fellowship meal so that they could hold one another up for going into the workplace next day, for going back to the fishing pier, for going back to the boat. And they could hold on to what they believed and teach the others around them. And it was glorious. What was the result of all of this unity? It's verses 43 and 44. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. What's the repeated word in those two verses? All. 
this even more accentuates the idea that while the apostles were selected and chosen, and they were special in the sight of Jesus as they walked with him and he chose them, it still says all. The belief, the faith, the growth, the power was all-encompassing. It was not for a select few. Let me say that again. Ministry was not for a select few. It was for all. Any who call themselves believer, and we know this, we've heard this our whole lives. If you have been a believer and you have grown up in the faith, you have heard that your steps, your footsteps are your mission field. And that has always been true. And maybe that's what throws a non-believer off when they look at the Christian life and see that maybe they're not so concerned about their world around them. We should be deeply concerned about our world around us. The problem is, is we think we can change it. And all we can do is pray and trust and obey the actions of the king listed right here. Everything's here. If we obey and we listen, then he does the changing. And we offer praise to God and we step back and say, you're going to do impossible things. All I did was tell somebody that you existed. And then you tore through their heart. How beautiful a picture. Look back at how specific this was. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now that seems like a stretch in 2021, doesn't it? All things in common. You could write libraries worth of books about the differences between humans, even in this room. What type of faith did it take to have all things in common? To have everyone on the same page? Does that mean that everyone thought exactly the same like robots? Absolutely not. Did that mean that everyone agreed with everything everyone else said? No. What it meant was, I see the goal. I see Christ. I see the mission. I see the task. And I believe in it with all my heart. And none of that other stuff matters. That's what all things in common meant. Their goal, their idea was the same. Verse 45 starts to get radical in our day in society. It puts into practice what many would say is impossible today. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some people would think, that this is an early form of a certain economical system that I starts with a C, big in Asia. I won't mention it quite here, but that is not the case here. They supported each other. They helped as any had need. They did not sell and lose everything, but were willing to give it all. And there's the difference. Unlike that major economical system where you have no choice, everything is taken and redistributed. This is a willing sacrifice of what we have. And they did it not just for the church members around them. They did it as any had need. The Bible doesn't mess around with words like that. Any didn't mean any, but those people know we, we can't help them. It meant any had need. Now, does that mean that, oh, somebody has a major psychological or maybe a drug addiction problem, I'm going to throw a few dollars at him and we're good. That's any need. Any need has been met. 
No. Maybe those few dollars can set them on a path to realize that they need help. Maybe those few dollars can set aside, set them on a path to come back to you. And that can really be uncomfortable. How many times do we say, oh, don't give them that money. They'll just come back asking for more. If it's here, praise the Lord. Is there no better place to be? When our hearts are willing to accept and help, is there no better place to be? Come to us. We want you to see that the Lord is different. Not that we're different. That the King has shaped us. And He can shape you. We had Whitney and I, day four of being here. I'll say this very briefly. We had someone who had a great need knock on the front door of our house at 10.30 at night on the fourth night sleeping in the house. They knocked on our front door, scared the daylights out of us, and were wondering, no one should be knocking on the door at 10.30, especially the front door. If it was family or something, or if it was a church member, they'd come to the side door. Why is there somebody at the front door? So we're freaking out, wondering what to do, how to get up. But long story short, this person needed help. They had been left at the post office, walked all the way to our house, had no cell signal, and needed us to call somebody to come help and pick them up. There were a thousand different scenarios going through my head as I opened that door. It could have been dangerous. It could have been somebody waiting to get in. That person who was crying could have been bait. I had a hundred different things running through my mind. But ultimately, we had no choice. The door had to be opened. The, I told Whitney that I can't pray to be put in situations to speak the gospel and then be mad when they show up at my doorstep. I can't be mad. I can't say, oh, dang, how did you do that to us? No, I asked for it. So we had to open the door. Do you think these New Testament people looked at a lame beggar on the street and said, that guy has been laying in this gutter for 45 days. Nobody touch him. No, they said, this man needs our help. Pick him up. Tell him who God is. The same instances. This is the willing sacrifice of people towards a common goal. Willing to share and sell whatever was needed to meet the needs of the, and of the group and perform their sacred duty. And each believer who professes the name of Christ and truly holds the Holy Spirit in their heart has a sacred duty, as I've mentioned before. What is the result of this? Verses 46 and 47. Let's look at here again. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They had two tasks here. And completing these tasks brought about the result. Attending the temple together, meaning a corporate church, a corporate worship, a corporate praise to God, a meeting of believers, but just as importantly, in the same breath, breaking bread in their homes. You cannot have one without the other. And in my experience, in my limited young experience, the breaking of bread in our homes was something that I watched kind of fall apart over the course of my life. 
The people around me used to get together and play cards and talk and discuss the things of the world and be together as believers. And over time, I've watched for whatever reason, people who were with each other every weekend start to pull apart. Lives move them different ways. Children move out of the house and therefore they don't have the connections they had anymore. The point is not who or what or how they fell apart. The point is shouldn't we try to rekindle fellowships we had? Fellowships amongst believers and fellowships between a believer and a non-believer. People that maybe have walked away from this church. Maybe they've walked away from any type of congregation. I don't want to pin this message to this church. This is much broader. We have to fellowship and break bread in the homes of those who simply need a light in their life. And that light is not us, it's Christ. We're just the flashlight. I've always said, I'm the flashlight, he's the batteries. Without the batteries, it's dead. It does nothing. I am simply the flashlight. God added to their number daily. If a lot of churches are concerned about numbers, so let's play that game. What if 20 new people walked in here today, never seen them before, 20 new people? Wouldn't everyone be like, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. What if those same 20 people never came back again a day in their lives? Would we be upset? Would we say, dang, what did we do wrong? What happened? Why, why didn't they come back? Or would we say, maybe that was where they needed to be in that moment for Christ's plan, not ours? Maybe that's where they needed to be in that moment. And we can reach out to them and say, please, we want to keep up with you. We're not necessarily asking you to come back. We just want to make sure you're okay. It's a mindset. It's a minimization and maximization to see where the tweaks need to happen in my brain. Because I know I'd be upset if I never saw any of them again. I know for a fact. But we should reach out. See where they are. What they're doing. And if they say, nope, leave us alone, we're done. What does the Bible tell us? Dust off your feet and move on. And trust that God's got it under control, not us. I wanted us to look and see what the church looked like directly post-ascendance. They are a beautiful and the best example of what our churches could look like. The unity, the giving of possessions, the breaking of bread in their homes and the meeting together. Consistent obedience. It wasn't just once a month we got together and ate. It was each day they are building each other up, holding each other up. How much easier is it to go through a problem with your friend, whether they want it or not? Sometimes you force it on them, but it's easier. It helps you go through the problem, right? Having someone by your side to help you deal with a problem, to help you sort through your thoughts, to help you sort through your mind is incredible and beautiful and poignant. Imagine a whole congregation that does that for each other. I know there's people in this room that if I was dead honest, I don't know them very well. Some people I don't know at all. Am I going to see it as a priority to get to know them? Truly? So that way when I see that they may be a little off today, maybe I see that they look a little down, all I have to say is, hey, are you all right today? And it's their choice whether they would want to rely on somebody's support. And imagine if they had a whole church full of people that were willing to support them. Wouldn't one strengthen the other, strengthen the other, strengthen the other? How beautiful would it be? 
It's really difficult because of age gaps. I simply don't relate to a lot of people in this room on what they like, what they do. Does that not mean that we can't have all things in common? Does that not mean that we can have all things in common? This is what's in common. And it's beautiful. This allowed them the ability to do something in their daily lives that was possible because they had built a fellowshipping, worshipping foundation of faith. They did their task, and that task was to spread the word with boldness. We're looking now at the result. They built such a strong foundation of faith and beauty and were able to stand upon this foundation and jump, fully leap out of that place into the word, into the city, into their neighbors, and say, God is real, we love him, we want the best for you, and he wants it even worse. He wants everything for you. Before we look at the second test, let's ask some follow-up questions. These are rhetorical. Unless you have an answer, feel free to shout it out. What do we expect to, big, big parentheses here, get from attending a church service today? What do we expect to get out of it? What do we come to church for? What image of church are we putting out for the world around us to see? And that's a big one. That's constantly changing. That is ever-shifting. Do our congregations behave in the way of the New Testament? Do we see that as a problem? Is it a problem? I found that the best way I grow in my entire life is asking myself questions I don't know the answers to. And seeking them out. And let me tell you, if you seek, you will find. Ask and the door will be opened. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and it will be given to you. It's here. We simply have to ask the tough questions. The answers to those questions sum up our intention and execution of gathering in worship to the king, whether good or bad. How we answer those questions bring forth the result of what we're doing, good or bad. The next text needs a bit of context, but little explaining once you get into it. The power of it is evident. And this next scripture, if you're going to turn to it with me, is Acts 4, 23-31. Peter and John, two of Jesus' direct disciples, had just been released after being arrested by Jewish officials. They were being held for speaking Jesus' name and message boldly, as, performing, as well as performing signs and miracles in Jesus' name. Now, we all know if you are a believer and raised in the tradition, that Jesus was killed by the, Jude, by the Jewish officials. He was crucified for being the Messiah that they didn't believe in. But he truly was and has always been and will always be the Messiah they, they are looking for. They were released when they realized the people of Jerusalem were praising God for the miracles through Peter and John. You can't exactly arrest and execute two people when the entire city is praising the God they did all the things in the name of. It's power of how bold faith breeds protection, guidance, and blessing. 
They could not deny God. They can deny Peter and John, but they cannot deny the work of the king. And notice, the people weren't praising Peter and John. They were praising the king, the God of all creation. And that is a huge difference. They could have killed Peter and John if they were praising them, and the revolution, as they saw it, would have stopped. But you can't kill God. You tried and you failed to kill God. And it had to burn him up. But here were Peter and John being bold. And not just them, the rest of the whole New Testament church was acting in the same way. Now we're going to read 4, 23-31. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And the signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You could preach years on that one text and never scratch the bottom of the depths of that faith. Brother Peter likes to talk about how Scripture is life-changing, and I couldn't hardly agree more. This is life-changing to see the result of that faith. Did anyone in this whole passage ever once credit what they were doing? Look back here. Look at verses 28 or 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Everything they did, they gave to God. And I want to point out here the word all again. Look at what they said. When they were released, Peter and John went to their friends, not their subordinates, not to their congregation members, not to the people that show up on a Sunday. They went to their friends and said, look, this is what's happening. And then all of them, the whole group, turned this over in praise, saying, look, the Gentiles have raged and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against your anointed Hear their threats and let us still be bold. And they said it together and they meant it. And it was so powerful. The foundation of that first text allowed them to speak this boldly. 
the foundation of being unified in all things, allowed them to go out and speak to the point where they were opposed. One of the surefire ways of knowing you're doing something right is if you've got opposition. Because there is always someone that is going to oppose you. It's incredible and powerful. I heard a phrase one time, I'm not sure where I heard it from, but it said, if you don't have any enemies, you're really not doing anything right. Christ is someone that the world does not like because the devil is the prince of the air. Now, does the devil ever had any power against the king whatsoever? Absolutely not. The devil could be blinked out of existence and not without time if that was God's will. So don't ever think that the world can actually stop or do anything against the king. It's not going to happen. But it is why we will run into such an opposition. The whole church was speaking boldly together as one. That last verse seems impossible. And I can't imagine it happening to this room. I can't imagine it happening to a body of believers. But focus on the power of verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Two things. The place in which they were gathered. Does that sound like a church building? Does that sound like a temple or a mosque or a hilltop monastery? No. The place where they were gathered. Christ's love and his teaching belongs to no area, belongs to no space, belongs to no place that we could build to him. He appreciates us gathering in a place. He appreciates us building spaces to be with him. But is he going to care if we all went out and sat in the lawn for three hours and sang hymns? No, praise the Lord, he wants that too. The second thing here, the building was shaken. How many of you believed if we all stood up and prayed at the top of our lungs and meant it with the bottom of our hearts, when we got done, the TV fell off, the ceilings rattled, everything shook, would we think, wow, that was God? Or would we think, we just experienced an earthquake? That's the tweakings of the brain. That's the tweaking of my brain to say, no, that was no coincidence. That was God showing up to people who believe and were obedient. I've been having a lot of trouble lately seeing that God rewards obedience. It seems like obedience just breeds more obedience, just breeds more tasks, just breeds more work. And I don't necessarily see what God is doing to bless the obedience, but that is such a horrid way of thinking. The blessings abound. Life abounds when people obey, when people react to opposition. I told, I said here, how much can we possibly wish to interact and react to the world in the way of the New Testament? I encourage you, read back through 23 to 31 yourself and note every single way that congregation reacted to something in the world. 
They threw it all back on God. To God be the glory of great things he has done. Give us the boldness to speak the word. And that's all that mattered. They didn't say, oh, strike down this guy and we'll be able to work. Oh, strike down this group of people and then we'll go out. They didn't say, oh, protect us. Notice that. They're not praying for protection. They're not praying for no conflict. They're not praying for lack of opposition. They simply pray for boldness. And we see in Brother Peter's teachings these past three weeks in Philippians how Paul never once prayed for protection because he ended up in prison and through the witness of God, the whole prison came to know Jesus. Do you think Paul would have prayed for protection and never been in that situation? You think he would have prayed to never have been there and never seen the work of God happen? Protection is a gift of God, and we should always be thankful that we are protected each and every day by our king. We should never hold on to that protection so much that we don't help someone God through right in our laps. That's what I learned at that door. That's what I learned opening that front door. I should never hold on to my comfort, my protection so hard that I deny someone who needs help. And that's scary. I'm telling you what, we were scared at that door. But she really stepped up and went outside and talked to that lady. She even gave her a hug. Held her close and said, God loves you. And that was more bold than even I. Long can we be that way. To forsake things that we have and hold dear to help someone else. Why do you think they said in verse 45 that they were gathering all they had, sold all they had, and provided to anyone who had need because they weren't holding on to what they had to prevent someone from seeing Christ? When we go up to the park, when we go into the city, when we do VBS, is this congregation prepared to do whatever it takes to help those around us? We wishy-washy back and forth, oh, we should provide this for them. We shouldn't provide this for them. Do we want them to come here? Do we want to go to them? All this, whatever. Unity in this mission breeds boldness and breeds buildings being shaken and all being filled with the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you personally have felt completely full of the Holy Spirit able to take on the world through his power? When's the last time that happened? Don't you wish a congregation, not just here, could be so unified and so full of faith that that happens? I want to experience it. I want it in my bones so bad. All of this passage in Acts, verse, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, were to fulfill one goal. And that is what Brother Rick read this morning. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. And it started there. The last command Jesus ever gave them. And they took that and they said, Yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. And then by obedience and learning and listening. By the way, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have scripture. They didn't have this neat, convenient, entire history of Christ. 
All they had were a few letters scattered around the Mediterranean. And yet, they took what they knew and built something that stretched across the globe through the power of Christ alone, and they knew it. That's what you saw in chapter 4. Everything was thrown back on him. Everything was given to him because the Great Commission meant something to them. Now, they started where they could, Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. But they started in Judea, and he added to their number daily. How beautiful is that? Can we not get there? This church is meant to kind of be a pit stop. We come in, we rejuvenate, and it enables us to return to the race, to return to the task at hand. We do not stay here. It means to reach to the ends of the earth. The church is to help reach the end goal. We are to be moving, running, and walking towards the lost and allowing church to teach, strengthen, and worship corporally to then walk again. We come in here and we should be exhausted from the work of Christ and through fellowship be able to stand back up in faith and walk out again to exhaust ourselves one more week till he returns. Day by day. Acts 2 is a physical example of how it worked. Acts 4 is what opposition will look like if done boldly. Matthew 28 is why we do it and why we must view it. It is the bench in the game, a pause not to live. It's very powerful, but it empowers us to go back. I don't want to diminish the need for church. Never hear me diminish the need for church. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's necessary. But it is where we plug in to charge our battery and go back out. Make no mistake, we need it. We need corporate worship. So why do we veer from the framework of the New Testament church? Those questions can be answered a myriad of different ways by scholars way, way more learned than I. But for whatever reason, from the day Jesus died to here, we don't look like the New Testament church on a whole. We don't look like all being unified all to the same goal, all giving, all speaking boldly, all being opposed, all, all, all. He says it over and over. Long may we be get back there. And I don't have the answers out the gate. I couldn't sit here and tell you, this is why, this is how we get back there, let's do it. I don't know. But once again, if we're all thinking about that question, if we're all wondering where in our heart needs to change, if we're all wondering where the church needs to change, wouldn't we not get back there? It starts here, with the Holy Spirit in your heart, changing things little by little. And if we're all doing it, then the church becomes more unified and we move back to that place. How beautiful a goal. I want to read in closing Matthew 28 just so we hear and walk out. We used to do this in one of my classes in, what was it? Intro to Christian Missions. At the end of every single class, my professor stopped us, we stood, we held out our Bibles, and we read Matthew 28. Because at the end of the day, that's the goal. 
That is the place that we are moving. That is the whole reason why we do anything. So if you have your scriptures open, I would invite you to read it with me. And if not, that's fine. But I'm going to read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How easily do we forget that the King is with us always, in every circumstance. It's powerful and beautiful. Let's return to a place where we can be unified in all things. We love our King. And if that love of the King is real, then we cannot help but obey like we should. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you do. We thank you that this place can someday be what it once was. We thank you that you have provided an entire piece of Scripture, the entire canon of Scripture for us to look back and see why it's worth it, to see why you are worth it. Guard our hearts, work in our hearts, move our hearts to a place that is willing to accept that type of thinking. Guard our hearts and encourage us to question why we do what we do. Encourage us to question why we believe what we believe. And in those questions, provide the answers in your scripture. Those answers are there. Let us see them. The answers have always been with you. And they have always been you. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Corporately, completely, top to bottom, yours. We love you, our King. Let us not go from this place forgetting what we've heard, forgetting what you have told us, because each and every one of us has heard your name and has heard what you can do in our lives. It has nothing to do with who's behind this pulpit or who's singing. All glory is to you. We cannot look at Acts and say that this is not all for you. Everything is for you. You are the great king. You are the savior. And you have laid the framework for everything we've ever done. We love you and we pray all these things in your blessed and holy name. Amen.